Wow, thank you. I, did, I was amiss not to say thank you to the worship team in the first service, and uh, that was quite a blessing. Well, anytime I'm introduced in a church, they, you know, they talk about all these different things, but those aren't the important things, uh, really. Uh, the more important thing is, uh, just to give you a little more bio, uh, in a, less than two months, I will be married to Elaine for almost, oh no, 44 years. How about that? Wow. So that's a good thing. Maybe after the message you go, boy, that's, that was really tough for her. Uh, and uh, the result of that marriage, seven children. Well, yeah, it was nothing, please, please nothing, it was, it was nothing. <laughs> now, this was something, six are female. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Uh, and just to answer the next question that's floating in your mind, they tried that hard to have a boy? <laughs> no. We were trying for a woman's volleyball team, so that's what we're going for. Yeah, so he became manager. You know, had to do the dirty work, that type of stuff. And so far, and hopefully we're just in a little lull right now as far as the grandkids go, 16, but uh, three of my kids aren't married, so, or four of my kids aren't married, so I, I, I'm shooting for 25. This is about discipling the nations, folks. So it also must be understood in the context of family, right? Well, I realize that in this context, I cannot just be warm and fuzzy for about 10 minutes and then get into the message. I need to jump into the message. So would you join me? Father, as we gaze into your word, what I desperately don't want to happen is this being the second message. Now, some people were going, how about Saturday night? Well, that was a different message. I don't want to revert to rote memory. That would be awful. That would be dishonoring to you. And so, Father, I ask for your spirit to fill me and to give me wisdom in how to present your word. And I pray for every individual in this room that they will not come to your word with their own intellect, but they will also confess that without your spirit, they cannot understand what your truth is communicating. It is too deep for us to even imagine. And forgive us for thinking that a surface understanding or our own intellect understanding is enough. It never is. And we thank you that you continue to mine that truth into our lives. For I pray these things in Christ's name, amen. Well, I've been given an impossible task, and that's to articulate this big story as it relates to Scripture. You know, this Bible that we carry around, now it's electronic, so we don't have to have that big book in our hands anymore, and so it's a little more manageable to carry for us, but that's 66 books, it's thousands of pages, and you know, that's a, that's a daunting task to think, we've got to know the story. I mean, let's just get a handle on the parts, but understanding the story is so essential to context, right? 
I mean, if I were to stand up here before you and I just said, hey, I have a confession to make before I get started. There was a time in my life where I lived with seven women. (laughs) If you didn't understand context, you would have no idea what I'm talking about, but because you have the context now, you're going, I thought you only had six daughters. I'm married to a woman, Uh, okay? So that's seven women, you have context, and it brings understanding. Have you ever gone to a movie? I mean, the worst thing in a movie is to miss the first 10 minutes, right? Now, I'm not talking about action films where you know exactly what's going to happen before it happens and everything else, mindless things. I'm talking about where you have to use your mind and you have to pay attention to what's going on, the flow, the plots, the subplots, where's the conflict, who are the major characters, all these different things. You miss the first 10 minutes, you're lost, right? But what's amazing to me is we can be very lazy in our understanding of the introduction of Scripture and never assume we're lost in reading it. For those of you that read in the room, now I teach college students, so it's rare to find someone who reads. (laughs) I wish I was being funny. But I'm sure there's readers in the room, you would never start a book four or five chapters into the book. You would, if I were to recommend that, you would be, that's ridiculous. Give me a break. Same thing with the Bible. The Bible is just not a collection of 66 books because some of those books weren't selling well. (laughs) You know, Numbers just was tanking. (laughs) So we had to put it with Matthew. He was selling pretty well. You know, or, you know, Judges. (laughs) You know, we should have changed the title. But that was tanking, so we put it with Psalms. Eh, look at our sales are up. No. This is a book written over by human, hand, you know, human writers, but birthed and guided by the Spirit of God to pen his story. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at the panorama, and then I'm going to try to bring some of those parts into it to show you some of the connection. But please understand, we're not even in an introductory position as I go through this message. The introduction of Scripture, or if you will, the exposition and then moving towards the conflict within a story, is the first 11 chapters of Genesis. And the reason why we can make that division is we move from general revelation to special revelation when we get into Genesis 12. So there is a distinct transition there. Now, as most of you know, in those first 11 chapters, you basically have five storylines going on. Creation, the fall, Cain and Abel, the flood, Tower of Babel. I would argue the meat of the exposition is in those first two chapters of Genesis that are so full of meaning and substance that we really need to connect because we meet the very key main character in the beginning God. See, in the Jesus movement, I thought I was the main character. But the main character is God himself. And then we're introduced to man, the second main character as we move into this. And man was given that unique creative um, 
concept of being created in the image of God, why I would believe so that we can have an intimate relationship with that living God. Intimacy was key. And I wish I had time to talk about that theme from Genesis all the way until the New Jerusalem because it all relates to this theme of intimacy and the presence of the sovereign king of all creation. We have that privilege. And then God commissioned mankind in Genesis 1.28 when he said, God bless them. And he said, be fruitful and multiply and subdue the earth. Rule over the fish in the sea, the birds in the air, and everything that creeps across the ground. That was our commissioning in the context of the intimate relationship that we were placed in. But then the conflict arises in chapter 3, correct? Man sins, but sin is such a minimalistic term these days. Heinous rebellion doesn't even capture what happened because man in the context of the relationship said, no, we will do this on our own. Oh my goodness, that sounds like me so many times as it relates to the purposes of God. I can deal with this one. And man rebels. And we find in that rebellion the second, the third character of this story, the enemies of God. And then we have those, the fall, Cain and Abel, the flood, Tower of Babel. I would argue that we must see these stories collectively and not just individualistic stories that we get some moral lesson from. And when you look at them collectively, you will discover that there is a cycle that is repeated in all four of those stories. The cycle goes like this. Man's sin. I mean, you, you can see it. In the fall, it's rebellion against the sovereign king. The story of Cain and Abel, Cain kills his brother Abel. In the flood, man is living as though that God doesn't even exist in what, whatever they desire. Tower of Babel I'll get to in a moment. Then there's God's judgment, right? Because he's a holy, righteous judge. In the fall, it is banishment from the garden, pain and childbirth. Now man has to produce greater sweat for less productivity as it relates to work. Work is not the curse. We were created for work, and it's through our work that we praise and worship God, but that's a whole other sermon. But those are part of the elements of the fall, separated from God. Cain and Abel, Cain has a mark and is banished and sojourns. In the flood, it's the flood. Judgment of God and Tower of Babel, we'll get to in a moment. Then we come to what we need to capture in these four stories, hope of redemption. Because in the context of what we know in Scripture, this is the first opportunity of seeing redemption in the context of judgment as it relates to God's purpose. In the story of the fall, it's, it's Genesis 3.15. I will bring enmity between you and the woman as God is speaking to the servant, between her seed and your seed, and he will crush your head and you will bruise his heel. This is a messianic portion of the Old Testament talking about the coming Messiah who is going to defeat the enemies of God and man. Amen. Then we have the story of Cain and Abel. And Eve makes this statement in Genesis 4.25. And Adam knew Eve and begot Seth. And Eve says, God has appointed to me another son to take the place of Abel. See, it's, 
would seem by that statement that Eve was anticipating that the promised seed was going to flow through Abel, but now Abel has been killed. You can imagine her quandary going, is that it? Is, that, is there no hope now in this redemptive purpose of God? But God appointed another son, and we find Seth in the genealogy of Jesus Christ listed in, Ma- in Luke's gospel. Hope of redemption. In the flood, the hope of redemption is the ark. Because the ark that God secures Noah and his family and the animals that they have collected to protect them from his judgment, deliverance. And then the final story is the Tower of Babel. Let's look at this one in a little more detail. Remember man's sin. What is the sin in the Tower of Babel? When I ask that question in my classes, students will say, if they know the story at all, will say, it's their pride. Well, that is certainly implied by this phrase, let us make a name for ourselves in Genesis 11.4. But the overt sin is in the next phrase, lest we be scattered over the face of the whole earth. See, God commissioned mankind in Genesis 1.28 and Genesis 9.1 to be fruitful and multiply and subdue. The only way you can subdue an earth is scatter. Right? But what they're saying at the Tower of Babel in that story in Genesis 11.4, it says, Come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower that reaches in the heaven, that we might make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered over the face of the whole earth, which clues us in that even though maybe thousands of years separates the commissioning statement from Genesis 1.28 to the story of the Tower of Babel, through the oral history of mankind, they knew that the God of creation had commissioned them for a mission. And their response was no. So what does God do? He drop kicks them to the four corners of the earth and confuses our language, and we have the creation of the nations. Where's the hope of redemption, though? Because if the hope of redemption has flowed through every single one of those stories, where is it in this story? We don't see the hope of redemption for about 400 years. It's in Genesis 12. And God says to Abram, I want you to leave your country and your kindred and your father's house to a land that I will show you and I will make you a great nation. I'm going to bless you and I will make your name great. I would argue that this third phrase of promise there, make your name great, helps us literarily connect to let's make a name for ourselves in Genesis 11.4. Now God is telling Abraham or Abram, I will make your name great. Then we see the purpose clause of verse 2, and so you shall be a blessing. Then verse 3, those who bless you, I will bless. Those who dishonor you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. There is the hope for the nations that God created through his judgment at the Tower of Babel. Hope of redemption. I would argue that those first 11 chapters of Genesis beautifully develop the plot of of the story. The plot of the story is God reestablishing his rule and reign on earth through the redemption of the nations. Now, 
I'll move to the conclusion real quick so we can tie it all together and then I'll start talking about some of the parts. So that's the hope. That through the seed of Abraham, in fact, in Genesis 17, in Genesis 22, in Genesis 26, in Genesis 28, God is going to reiterate this covenant promise that he has made with Abraham. And I think the reason why he does it is because I'm slow and a little dense and it takes me multiple redundant reminders, this is what I'm about, this is what I'm about, this is what I'm about. But unfortunately, probably the first 20 years of my Christian life, I still missed it, even though I read it time and time again. Because I thought I was the center of the story as it related to that. But then we go, move from that, and let's go to Revelation, the conclusion of the story, and let's hear these words. Revelation 7, 9, and 10. Behold, I saw a great multitude, which no one could count, of every nation, tribe, language, and people gathered around the throne. See, John is giving us a glimpse of the future when God fulfills his promise to Abram, who becomes Abraham, which means a father of a multitude of nations, according to Genesis 17. And he says, and they were clothed in white robes, and they had palm branches in their hands, and they cried out with a loud voice, loud voice saying, salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. That's the end of the story. But see, everything in the context of the story must be understood in the context of the plot, in this global context of the Christian faith that we live today. Without it, we'll extract verses out of the Bible, interpret them outside of that context, not even thinking whether that is the true interpretation of the text. I said to the earlier service this morning, one of my favorite verses is this idea of in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 3, that God in Christ has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. Well, if I don't understand that concept in the broader plot of scripture of God's redemption of the, among the nations, this is how I would interpret that verse when I extract it out of context. Oh, wow, God wants to bless my socks up. This is going to be so cool. And as I read scripture, it seems like all God wants back from me is 10% of what he gives me. This is great. I get 90%. Man, give me more. Bless me more. Oh, I've got to find out what's going on here. So we can develop the blab it or grab it theology, or we can develop this unbiblical concept that God only wants 10% from you. And he's so pleased when he gets it. That's not New Testament stewardship. Now, if I understand that in Christ God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavens, if I understand that from this truth, God blesses his people in order to accomplish his purpose. That's the context of scripture. Now I'm interpreting that scripture totally different. And it's no longer manipulated by my desires and my biases and my perspective. I'm now yielding to his story in his perspective. 
Let's quickly kind of move through this idea of commissioning since I already brought it up in Genesis 1.28, the commissioning of mankind. And let's look at three other commissionings quickly. The commissioning of the nation of Israel. I would argue that God called these group of Jewish slaves to be his people, to be a light to the nation. So let's see if I can prove my point here. In Exodus 19, the children of Israel have been delivered from slavery in Egypt. Now let's remind ourselves in Exodus 7, 8, and 9, those three chapters, we have this repetitive phrase as it relates to the 10 plagues of Egypt that they might know that I am God, that they might know that I am God, that they might know that I am God. Who is God talking about? Just the Jews? They already know he's God. No, it's to the Gentiles that are witnessing this. And we know that in Exodus 12, 38, a mixed multitude also went with them on the Exodus journey. That's non-Jews. So in other words, Gentiles. Who they are, I don't know. They could have been other slaves from other countries. They could have been Egyptians that are going, you know, I think he's really God. I'm going with him. But God finally brings these slaves to the mount at the foot of the Mount Sinai, Moses goes up and God speaks to them in Exodus 19. Listen to what he says, starting in verse 4. You've seen what I've done to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now then, if you'll indeed obey my covenant and keep my commands, you shall be my own treasured possession among all the nations, for all the earth is mine. You are to be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. Now let's kind of dissect that, and forgive me for the technical language, but uh, we've got a lot more smarter people in here I've met already. It's like, why am I up here preaching? So let's dissect this. When you look at verse 5, there is a clause at the end of verse 5. It can be interpreted two different ways. The NIV, and that's the Bible I, I hear that you have in your pews, if you were to open that Bible to verse 5, and the last clause would be introduced by the preposition, although. So it would read, you shall be my treasured possession among all the nation, although the whole earth is mine. So the translation committee for the NIV determined that this clause was concessional. In other words, they believe it was conceding to the main thrust and point of the Mosaic Covenant. And they understood the main point being God chose these Jewish slaves to be his people. So let me put it simply. This is what they believe it was saying. Even though all the nations are mine, I'm picking you. Now what's the focus? That's not rhetorical. I'm a college professor. I love response. Okay, you're just going to laugh at me. That's not a good response. <laughs> so what's the response? What's the focus? Israel. Thank you, Scott. Okay, he's a ringer. I wanted more people. Okay. Israel becomes the focus. Are, are you with me? That was the Christian life that I lived for almost 20 years. King James, New King James, Revised Standard, New Revised Standard, American Standard, New American Standard, English Standard, and maybe some other standards that exist in the world that I don't know about. They translate it not with the preposition although, they translate it the way I quoted it, for all the earth is mine. The reason why they use the preposition for is because they believe 
This is not concessional. They believe this phrase is causal. Okay? So this is what they think God intends us to hear. I'm picking you because of my love and compassion for the nations. Do you see the difference? One elevates you, the other elevates the mission of God. You with me? One elevates you, one elevates the mission of God. The way you live the Christian life will dictate the way you take that Mosaic covenant. Now, you might argue, well, Jeff, did any of these Jews believe or, or think that? I mean, can you prove anything to me? Well, I don't have a lot of time. In fact, I'll probably go over. But anyway, I'll give you two examples. One, Numbers 14, beginning in verse 13. The children of Israel were posed, ready to go into the promised land. Ten, twelve spies go in. You know the story. Most of you know the story. Ten of them go, oh my goodness, we're like grasshoppers and they're so big and we ought to go back into slavery. And then Joshua and Caleb are gone. Man, it's everything God promised. If he's with us, we can take him. And they went with the majority report and began to grumble against God. God goes to Moses in verse 13 and says, hey, Mo." This is the Lewis paraphrase version. Let me wipe them out here in the wilderness, and from you I will raise up a greater and mightier nation than them. If I was Moses, I would have taken the deal because they were a little pain in the gluteals. But listen to how Moses prays. And I would say he understood the mission of God. But Father, what will the Egyptians say? For they have seen how you have delivered your people out of slavery and how you are with them day and night as a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Now if you wipe them out as one man, they will assume that you did not have the power to keep your promise. Moses understood it was not just about the nation of Israel. It was about God's purpose among Israel. Let's do another example. Solomon. Solomon is praying a prayer of dedication for the temple in 1 Kings chapter 8. And in verse 1 he says, Lord, when the foreigner comes to this place, and remember the outer court was known as the court of the Gentiles. When the foreigner comes to this place and prays towards this house, because they're going to hear about you through your outstretched arm, your mighty deeds, and your, uh, your wonderful works. When he prays towards this house, hear their prayers so they will know that you are God and believe in you as do your people Israel. I would argue Solomon understood in his wisdom, even though he kind of went off base on that wisdom thing, he understood in his wisdom that this wasn't just about us, this is about the nations the commissioning of Israel to be a light to the nations. We have the commissioning of Jesus Christ, and I will hurry along here. The commissioning of Jesus Christ can be, we could look at Isaiah 49, verse 6, because that's the prophetic utterance of, his, of this commission that he's been given as he's sent, going to be sent into the world. It says, is it too small a thing that I should call you my servant to raise up the tribe of Jacob, to restore the preserved ones of Israel? 
I have made you a light to the nations that my salvation might reach to the ends of the earth. Messianic portion of scripture talking about the coming Messiah, not only coming for the Jews, but also for the Gentiles and the nations. Or I could go to John the Baptist who said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. But I'd rather introduce you to one of the most important texts of the Gospels in Luke 4. In Luke 4, 16, it says, Jesus returned to Nazareth, his hometown, and as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath. And he stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. And so Jesus unrolls the scroll and found the place where this is written, and he begins to read. Now, if there were chapter and verses there in the scroll, it would have been Isaiah 61, verses 1 and most of 2. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to release, to give release to the captive, recovery of sight to the blind, and to set free those who are downtrodden. Then Jesus rolls the scroll back up, hands it back to the attendant, and then he sits down. Now, can you imagine what's going on in the synagogue right now? Hometown synagogue, they've heard the rumors about the teaching and healings that Jesus has been doing, and now he reads a messianic portion of scripture, and he sits down? with no commentary? It says all the eyes of the synagogue are fixed on him. You better believe it, they don't want to miss a single syllable that's gonna fall from his lips. And then at some appropriate or inappropriate moment, Jesus says, today this prophecy has been fulfilled in your hearing. He has just declared to his hometown synagogue, I am the Messiah that you have longed for. Now listen to the text. Their response was this. They were all speaking well of him and wondering of the gracious words that were falling from his lips and saying, is this not Joseph's son? Now, most people want to immediately come back and go, it was a negative response. All speaking well of him? If you say that of me when I leave today, I'm going to be thrilled. And the Joseph something could have been, you know, I had him in fourth grade Sabbath school. I thought he had promise. That's not why they're going to reject him. Here's why they're going to reject him. He goes on to say, No doubt you will quote this proverb to me, Physician, heal yourself. Whatever we had heard you had done at Capernaum, do here also in your hometown as well. But I tell you, no prophet is welcome in his hometown. I can now hear the synagogue going, Why do you bring that up? We like you. We love the fact you're the Messiah. Just think of what you're going to do for us. Right? And then he goes to the point. There were many widows in Israel during the time when the sky was shut up for three years and six months and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them. None of them are the Jewish widows. So God did not send his prophet to minister to any Jewish widows. But he did send him to Zarephath, a woman who was a widow from Sidon. That is the Phoenician area, at this time, Syrophoenician. And he healed and ministered to her. And then he goes, there were many lepers in the time of Elisha the prophet, when, but he didn't send Elisha to any of those Jewish lepers, didn't heal a single Jewish leper that was suffering from that dreadful disease, but he did heal Naaman, a Syrian. What's the response of the people now? New American Standard puts it this way. 
the synagogue was filled with rage. It shifted from all speaking well of him to the synagogue filled with rage. Why? I would argue this, because Jesus included the Gentiles into his ministry, the nations. It's kind of like, what do you mean? We're the people of God. You've come to restore us so that we can rule and reign against the nations. And a lot of times we look at the nations in such a negative view. Your salvation relates to the hope of the nations because it brings us to the next commissioning. That's the church. We have been commissioned. Unfortunately, we've taken the commission statements of the Gospels and we've made it only for those who sense a vocational calling where they get paid to do mission work around the world. No, that's not what these commissioning statements refer to. Now you're going, commissioning statements? What are you talking about, Jeff? Aren't you talking about the Great Commission? Well, if you turn to Matthew 28, verse 16, you would find the editor's note, the Great Commission. But those are editor's notes. That's not in the biblical text. The Great Commission is not a single statement. The Great Commission are five statements that Jesus gives starting Thursday evening of the resurrection and is finalized on the day of his ascension. And they go like this in chronological order. Not in the order that they appear in Scripture, but chronological order. These are all meant for everybody in this room who claims Jesus as Lord and Savior. Please hear me. These are words for you. If we say we love you and we don't obey these, then we are saying we don't love you. Here they are. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. First one the night of his resurrection. Next one, Mark 16, 15, proclaim the gospel to all creation. The next one, Matthew 28, make disciples of all nations. I'm just summarizing here. The next one, Luke 24, 47, that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in my name to all nations. And then the last one, on the day of the ascension, Acts 1.8, and you will receive power and the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses from Jerusalem, all of Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And please understand those four areas of the world as not a sequential movement of the gospel, but a simultaneous movement of the gospel. The only sequential nature to Jerusalem, all of Judea, Samaria, and most parts of the earth are the first 10 chapters of Acts. After that, it is simultaneous which means that no matter where you happen to be located geographically in the world, you are to be engaged both locally, globally, simultaneously. You have no option to opt out of local, and you have no option to opt out of global. In fact, the local ministry must be understood in a global context because the global mission of God is our end goal. And for some reason, we have taken the commissioning of Christ and relegated it to something that is peripheral in the context of the church. It's only for the weirdos. Well, I just probably supported that view by my (laughs) preaching, but whatever. No. If you claim the name of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, you have already been called to be strategically, intentionally engaged in his mission every day of your life. If we would truly embrace our calling it changes everything changes the way we pray 
changes the way we understand stewardship. It changes the way we raise our children. It changes the way we nurture our grandchildren. It changes the way we understand our marriages. It changes the way we do local ministry in a community like Pasadena in this area of Los Angeles County. You're just not here to help broken marriages. No, you want to help broken marriages so that they will become disciples of the nation. It's not just that you want to help the homeless, but you want to help the homeless so they can be nurtured and be participants in the global mission of God, both locally to the ends of the earth. Our goals are way too short because they miss the goal of Scripture. The story of God is the story of the redemption of the nations. In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Behold, I saw a great multitude, which no one could count, of every nation, tribe, language, and people gathered around the throne and around the Lamb. Everything in between develops that story and communicates to us how we enter the story to participate with the sovereign king of all creation. My last statement will be the foundational point of application to this message, and here it is. Be still and know that I am God, and I will be exalted among the nations, and I will be exalted in all the earth, Psalm 46, 10. I would argue, and it has been the foundation of my ministry for 31 years now, that the catalyst to our, in, our full engagement among the nations is to not become a mission fan, a mission enthusiast. No. The way you are engaged in the mission of God is you pursue the passionate, intimate knowledge of the God who has a mission. And you do so not through a magical mystery tour of your mind and perspective. You do so in the context of his word. And if you are developing those two intimacy, intimacy with the living God and intimacy with his word, he will then nurture your heart to match his heart and mission perspective. David was a man after God's own heart. I challenge you to read his celebration of the Ark of the Covenant being returned to the tabernacle in 1 Chronicles 16 and notice how he seamlessly integrates global language in his praise and celebration that could have been just something that was provincial and parochial in its celebration because he had touched the heart of God and God changed his heart to see God's perspective. My prayer for this congregation is that you will be a people joined together around the Lord Jesus Christ in his mission until he returns. Amen.